Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. Hello and welcome back to The Contrarians, and if you feel a slight sting, that's just pride fucking with you. But uh, <laughs> my name is Alex, and I'm joined as always by Julio. Julio, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's uh, bright and early. It is. For a Contrarians recording, at least. It is. We uh, tackled a, a bit of a lengthy movie today, so as is tradition in the past, the only other movie that came close to this, well, actually surpassed it, was uh, Cloud Atlas, and we took a similar approach for that, so... Uh, we are here today for Pulp Fiction, continuing on with the Summer of Travolta, going from one end of the spectrum to the other. Battlefield Earth, what was it, 3%? Oh, we never looked. <laughs> no, it was. Was uh, it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and we're going way up uh, to a nice, shiny red tomato, 94% here for Pulp Fiction. Went up 91 points. It did. Same Wall guy. went crazy. Within the same decade. God bless. Uh, just hoping today that our podcast isn't as long-winded and meandering as the the movie we just watched. I guess I guess we'll we'll find out. Uh, so, Pulp Fiction, widely regarded as Quentin Tarantino's masterpiece, Julio, we'll get into it here shortly. Um, how are you feeling after we just finished watching this? I feel like uh, actually, what describes it best, especially in the context of what we're doing, is something you said while we're watching it, which is, I What's can't up? believe this is the same guy <laughs> that did Battlefield Earth. <laughs> uh, for many reasons, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's just, it literally, I mean, it either proves Travolta's a hell of an actor, you know, because you're like, is this the same guy? Literally, him, his performance here versus his performance in Battlefield Earth. Regardless of how you feel about it, mm-hmm. you know, whether you think it's good or bad, it is... Two different people. <laughs> it is. And, well, for at least the, we have the thread of commonality with these two movies, both being in the science fiction realm. Uh, Battlefield Earth, of course, post-apocalyptic future. This a, a time-traveling tale in which John Travolta is able to bend the fabrics of time itself. Yeah, well, I'm sure it has, a, it has something to do with that suitcase and that... I think, yeah, whoever has that has has all the power, has all the infinity stones. Yes. (laughs) Topical, yeah. Yeah. But I got that. So uh, before we launch into this here, because there's quite a bit to tackle, um, my notes read more like a a roadmap than uh, an analysis of a film. Uh, basically just highs and lows because this thing takes us all around. Is it just like uh, uh, just a roadmap full of uh, pop culture references? Mm -hmm. Just things that... Back in the 90s were new, and now they've become commonplace. Were Marilyn Monroe and Mamie Van Doren the same person? We will try to find out today. Uh, but Julio, again, 94%. That means a hell of a lot of people liked it. What do the critics say about this? Uh, yes. So, got a few positive red tomatoes here. 
starting with Jamie Bernard from the New York Daily News, who says it resurrects John Travolta from Look Who's Talking Hell. It makes Bruce Willis into a serious actor, and it honors the power and fancy of intelligent dialogue, written by the director himself. What? When, when are we considering Look Who's Talking Hell? Come on. And Bruce Willis wasn't that too, right? Isn't he the, he the, was the baby? The baby. Yeah. The boy. So he, he came out of that hell as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carrie Ricky from the Philadelphia Inquirer says, whether you call it razzmatazz, pizzazz, or zizzle, Pulp Fiction's got it. Enough style for a dozen movies, and truth be told, enough story for five. Enough buzzwords for one review also. Carrie was in Tarantino's pocket. Mm. Uh, speaking of pocket, James Mottram from Total Film simply asks, now where did we put our gold watch? <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. And that's uh, a positive review? That's a positive review. Uh, Phil Villarreal from the Arizona Daily Star says, In most cases, the three-act A to B to C film formula works just fine, but the letter Q makes the other letters obsolete. For Quentin? For Quentin. Okay. For, for Quarantino? <laughs> uh, John G. Puccio from Movie Metropolis says, It isn't often a movie comes along that helps change a whole generation of succeeding films. Movie line... No no critic name there. Says, all in Tarantino would have bothered to rescue the former Vinnie Barbarino from the sewers of talking dog movies. But he got repaid handsomely for his troubles. Who is Vinnie Barbarino? Like, uh, which character? Is that his character in Look Who's Talking? Uh, I, I guess. I don't know. It's been quite a while since I've seen. We will find out. Look Who's Talking 2 is part of the docket yes. uh, this summer. Uh, and finally, Chris Hicks from Deseret News Salt Lake City closes up with an enigmatic... I'll take Tarantino over Oliver Stone any day. Okay. I don't know if we're asking you to make that choice, but that, that's fine. Glad that's, we know. That's like a last episode, the people that couldn't couldn't stop bringing Star Trek into the conversation about Battlefield Earth. Yes. Just say, like, why would you bring Oliver Stone into this? The poor man's Klingons. Yeah. Just leave him, leave him at home. Tarantino is a poor man's Oliver Stone. Well, I guess uh, Natural Born Killers would be the connection, maybe. That's Ye- what- well... I guess depending, yeah, since Tarantino originally wrote that screenplay. It's still uncalled for. And Oliver then he Stone's. walked out in the opening credits because it wasn't what he thought it should be. Um, anyway, uh, I guess we're into Contrarian's Corner, the section of the podcast where we will rage against the machine, as you we said. We argue against Rotten Tomato and their high standings or low standings. Regardless of our actual opinions. Yeah, we'll get to the real talk in real talk a bit later on. Uh, Pulp Fiction begins with uh, two robbers. I believe they're bank robbers, but they're changing to they're going to domesticate their operations a bit more. Uh, Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. Honey Bunny being the female. I did not catch her name. Uh, it's uh, Amanda Plummer. Okay, and Pumpkin being, of course, Tim Roth, of the Russian abomination Bur- himself. <laughs> the abomination himself. Yeah, Mister Orange was he Mister Orange and Reservoir Dogs? The last time I saw Reservoir Dogs was with you, and it's been a few years, so I don't quite remember. He, he was one of the Misters. He was. He was Mister Turncoat. I do use a gif of him saying, "I'm fucking dying here," quite often. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, we start with uh, Tim Roth uh, doing a TED talk about burglaries and robberies, just dropping racial epithets along the way. This will be a theme, <laughs> not just of this movie, but Tarantino's <laughs> filmography in general, his career. Yes. It really, we achieve like uh, racial slur event horizon, horizon of it when Tarantino himself comes on the screen. Just to, to Within drop a thirty few seconds of being on screen, about seven n bombs have been dropped. Uh, 
they're discussing basically how they can domesticate their operations and no longer worry about robbing banks, but just robbing diners, much like the one that they're in. Uh, yeah, because uh, there's more wallets. The plan being stealing all the wallets from all the patrons and robbing the cash register. This goes on for way too long. It does, much like many of the dialogue scenes in this film. Just get get to the point. After two and a half hours, that movie easily could have been 90 minutes. Yeah. Uh, but the movie begins. They stand up the diner that they're in, and we get a stylish cutaway to the opening title credits. Yes, and then we don't see them again for two hours. While Dick Dale plays in the background. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so you make me sit through this, what, five, ten minutes of Tim Roth talking and talking and talking, and then when things are about to get good, you just cut away. Yeah. Just because you leave me hanging for two hours. Tarantino wanted to listen to some surfer music, so we all have to suffer because of it. Uh, we open in on Jules and Vincent Vega. They are are. We will talk about this more in real talk, but for intents and purposes, I think our main characters, Vincent and Jules. I, I think, yeah. Vincent, of course, by um, played by the man of the hour, John Travolta, and Jules played by Samuel Jackson in what some people consider a career defining performance. Uh, I say those people haven't seen Freedomland. We, <laughs> oh, it's such a bad movie. Uh, we open in. They are driving around in Jules's car as Vincent has recently returned from Amsterdam, living in Europe, and we're discussing the differences in their fucking fast food operations there. It's uh, that was Travolta doing a TED talk about Europe. Exactly. Basically. The Royale with cheese. Uh, then Holland, they use mayonnaise on French fries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Drugs are legal. Yeah. Or they can't search you. The police can't search you. I, I don't know. What I, is this? It <laughs> does not pertain to what their mission at hand is. They're heading over to an apartment of a gentleman named Brad who stole from their boss. Right. But we don't get to that for another, like, ten minutes because they yes. arrive early. Mm-hmm. So they just shoot the shit for ten minutes. And instead of introducing Uma Thurman at this point, we basically get a, a character profile of her before she's introduced in, in physical form in the film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of talking about food massages and TV pilots, and it's just basically the stuff that you should cut out of a movie so you can get to the point. Mm-hmm. It's just there, led there. It's almost like when they were cutting the movie, they they picked up the stuff that was on the floor and they made the movie out of that. Yes. All things the big that, set pieces are gone. Things did not make the cutting room floor. They were hoisted from said floor. Yeah. Uh, talking about foot massages, a man getting thrown out of a building because he gave uh, their boss, Marcellus Wallace, you'll hear that name quite often, for the purposes of uh, saving time, we'll just refer to him as Marcellus. You don't want to refer to him as Ving Rames? Ving, well, <laughs> I mean... big enough to... Uh, Marcellus, Mr. Wallace, wh- what have you. Ving Rames, I mean, that, that's... I feel that would cast a shadow over John Travolta, and that's <laughs> not what we want to do right now. Uh he is their boss. The gentlemen they go to visit uh, have stolen something from him. Now, based on the conversation that was had about a gentleman uh, that was thrown out of a building for giving Mr. Wallace's wife a foot massage, we can pretty much conclude that he's a testy individual not to be trifled with. Yes. Brad and his band of misfits, though, have betrayed this as they've stolen a briefcase of some sort. Again, get the point. Goes on way too long. Well, yeah, because once they finally go in... Uh, we have, what, a five-minute talk about what they're having for breakfast mm-hmm. and Kahuna burgers. Who eats it, burgers for breakfast? <laughs> they definitely they don't look like the kind of people that eat burgers for breakfast. No. Though. Terrible casting. Yeah. Uh, Ethan Supley. Put there him in. Yeah. yeah. I, I would believe that. No. These guys are fit. Mm-hmm. Unless that's, you know, they just came back from working out. 
But again, it's fucking 7.30 in the morning, and they're dressed for the day. What is this shit? I don't know. They're like, one of them, Brad, is sitting on, and like, this sort of, it looks like a school desk. And fucking that apartment, four dudes living in that tiny shithole? Come on, now. Yeah, um, but it's, now this is just a very personal preference, but I was grossed out by Samuel Jackson grabbing the burger and eating it, and you get a close-up of Mm -hmm. him, like, chomping on it, and he grabs the Sprite, and he drinks I don't like watching people Lars Van Trier style, right (laughs) up in it. Yeah, exactly. It's very, just not uh, adorned at all. You get, like, the sound effects pumped to the max. You hear the... Yes. It's gross. I don't need that. I don't like it, and it serves no purpose in the story. No, it does not. Uh, Brad is becoming very uncomfortable, very nervous. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson just kills one of his buddies willy-nilly. I believe he says, sorry, did I break your attention? Something along those lines. Uh, They find the case, though, and this is, I guess, the the mystery of the film is what's... What's in the box? The biggest cock tease in the movie that's never really answered. And it really, by the time you get to the end... What if re- it is Gwyneth Paltrow's head? It could be. It, you know, it's just, it's a... It's they, a prequel. They bronze This is it. six, not seven. No, this would be eight. Eight. Wait, why? Because it's a sequel. It wouldn't be a prequel. Oh, fuck. You're right. So maybe it's like Kevin Spacey's fingerprints are in there or some shit. <laughs> well, it could be her head. Yeah, I mean, it's a with side quill. It fucking John Travolta's a time traveler in this movie, <laughs> so. Right. But yeah, no, I think that it's one of those things where the film is full of inane conversations, just like lots of filler. And it's how do we get your attention? How do we keep you from walking away? Oh, we're going to introduce this mystery of the suitcase and what's in the suitcase, but we're not going to tell you about it. Ever. There's it, usually a gunshot or a racial slur that's dropped to kind of get your just attention. Just to get you back, yeah. yeah. So what becomes also a common theme of the movie is Samuel Jackson's, uh, basically, his catchphrase. If he were a pro wrestler, this would be where the crowd sings along with him. He recites a verse from the Bible, page and cover, and um, I guess this is supposed to make him a badass. I, I, I also, maybe relatable in the religious people everywhere. He he. Yes, later because in the, movie, the strong Christians are going to go out of their way to watch this movie. <laughs> That's how you roped him in. Yes, did you know? Someone he's a religious him. man. He's the shepherd. Yeah, he uh, he sees the light. He does eventually. So they take care of Brad. They get their case. Uh, is what is implied, and then again we have John Travolta has the case. So I guess that means he's capable of time travel at this point. Uh, as we go, just right into the future and he uh this is where ving rames comes into play and bruce willis is there and then john travolta show i'm i'm lost at this point yeah there's well here's the thing we don't know that's ving rames this is a black man's head like shot from the back i know ving rames's voice when i hear it (laughs) oh well it could be a voiceover it could be yeah it could be like street fighter where they put a body double for ral julia and just dubbed his lines over it like star wars i mean that's not general jones as vader it's just his voice that's correct so i guess he was too busy to do the voiceover on this one that's right so so ving rames doing the voice for some random black dude it was actually yeah it was uh alfred hitchcock under all that uh but yeah, he's he's just he's, yeah. Again, that bandaid on the back of his head not explained. Did he cut himself shaving? What the fuck happened? Why here? do you shave the back of your head? If you're a bald man, you take a big razor and shave your head. Haven't you seen Breaking Bad? Walt does that. 
I I never saw him shaving that low. I mean, um, I don't know. I don't know. Well, Ving Rams gets low. Trust me. <laughs> he was. Also, why isn't like Uma Thurman shaving his head? Is he is he too bad for that? Is I don't he, know. Well, I, I mean, he's the main thing is it's it's a powerful black man humiliating, talking down. To, God, to a ha- he's just sunning <laughs> Bruce Willis here. <laughs> the the subtext, you know, Bruce Willis, uh, uh, you would you could you Butch would call Coolidge, him, yeah, in the nineties, a faded action star from the eighties, mm-hmm. and and you know he just he he gets owned by this new generation of. Th- action. This is like someone like the critics talking down to him about his career. <laughs> yeah, it's Tarantino. It, if you character. feel a slight stinging while making Armageddon. That's just pride fucking with you. So the gist of this is that Butch, Bruce Willis, is a professional prize fighter. He's a boxer. And uh, Marcellus is telling him to throw his fight. He's going to pay him a lot of money because I guess there's a lot of money tangled in this fight. And he needs to throw it. Yeah. And I guess the implication is that Bruce Willis, is his career is on the way down anyway. Mm-hmm. Right? He tells him, if you were going to make it, you would have made it by now. Mm-hmm. So you're too old. And... You're the boxing fan here, so I don't know if that's how it works in boxing, Alex. It, I'm the, not the logistics sure. of, of this whole thing. Ving Rhames typically will assist in these things, but I, not all the time. Uh, I have heard of meetings with Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather and Ving Rhames explaining exactly what you will and won't do out there. And he talks to them just like this. Yeah, exactly. You go down in the third. Uh, but we get our heat moment of Travolta, John Travolta and Bruce Willis on screen at the same time. Slow motion. Tensions are palpable. Yeah. Uh, Travolta calls him Palooka. Mm-hmm. I've never heard anybody use that term before, and I haven't heard it since. Well, Travolta, again, he's a time traveler in this, so just wait. It's probably something <laughs> 200 from years f- from now. Exactly. Uh, Palooka and Punchy. Yeah. But in this scene with Travolta and Samuel Jackson, uh, Jules and Vincent in the background, they're not wearing their suits, their uh, suit and ties that we're used to. I guess they're on vacation. They're off duty at this point. Uh, but we set the stage. They look like they're coming to one of your Hawaiian parties. Yes, my annual Hawaiian shirt blowout. Uh, in essence, this is just to set up what's going to happen further down the line. Again, taking too long to do so. Yeah, I mean, we're like, what, 30 minutes into the movie? And we still don't know what the story is. No. Fortunately, much like a ray of sunshine, a dandelion, a beacon of hope, Eric Stoltz enters the fray. He is uh, Vincent Vega's drug dealer, and Eric Stoltz, uh, if I can say one thing positive about this film, it's that he's firing on all cylinders here. Well, you know, he knew he he would be our... uh, uh, He's the Embry. Right, the Embry. I was going to say, are we still calling it the Embry? Yeah. It will always be the Embry. Yeah, so he had... Much like it will always be the Rousey. He read the script. He took, you know, the whole week that it takes to read that script, probably. Mm -hmm. And then he saw that he had precious moments on screen, and he needed to make the most of them. Yes. His first scene is with John Travolta, so he has to bring the A game. And he's a heroin dealer. This is not your daddy's Eric Stoltz that we're dealing with here. Long hair, beard. This is not would-be Marty McFly. Nope. Uh, Speed Racer shirt. Speed Racer shirt. He's dating uh, Rosanna Arquette. They have a strange woman just living in their home with them. That's never explained. Actually, this opens with another TED Talk. It's a TED Talk about oh, piercing. Oh, is this the piercing conversation? <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. Every every scene, it feels like every sequence opens with a monologue about something that has absolutely no bearing on the story, what little there is of it. This movie's like if Wikipedia was a pop-up. 
It just kind of appears and gives you information about random shit. Okay. Um, we go to... This transitions to we meet Mia Wallace, Mr. Uh, Marcellus Wallace's wife, and uh, Vincent has been commissioned to take her out for an evening, basically just to show her the town and entertain her. Dangerous that, job. No yeah, way it could end well. Yes, but also it just sounds... I, it just seems contrived. I understand it needs to happen for the movie to continue, but I just I don't see they could have found a better reason for them to have right. to come together. I just why what kind of man? And maybe it's just that we don't know Marcelo as well as besides the fact that you know he has a band aid on the back of his head. But why would you do that? What what kind of man? And why would John Travolta? Why would Vincent sign up for it, having heard about basically anyone that talks to her is thrown out of a building? Right, I'd be like, I'm busy. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but he just, I I don't understand that dynamic. That whole take my wife out, John Travolta. Mm-hmm. You're I don't know a better dancer than I am, <laughs> but I'm gonna roll the dice anyway. Well, we're gonna give it a shot. I mean, Marcellus has to know. By now, his wife, right? Mm-hmm. And through this whole Vince and Mia sequence, it they develop a chemistry. And I can't imagine that a mob boss as, as smart, allegedly, as Marcellus, as ruthless, would be blind to that, that thing, that his wife could potentially fall for John Travolta if they go on a date. Early 90s Travolta, too, with that hair. Right. That, the, yeah. the, the, that pony they, nub. Yep. Every uh, time that 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 like that hair falls on his face, swoon, swoon. Uh, but with this, and yeah, like you said, and his wife is clearly she's a literal puppeteer. She's watching Vincent move throughout her house and instructing him on what to do. Uh, she's also doing uh, several large rails of cocaine. So already an ominous uh, feeling washes over us. They go to Jackrabbit Slims, which. Again, I've never seen a place like this as detailed, so I have no choice but to believe it's from the future, uh, given that time is not linear in this film. Or the very past, maybe. Possibly. The yeah. portal to the 50s or whatever. Uh, how did you feel? Did you get. How do you feel about Uma Thurman's dialogue, Mia, Mia Wallace's dialogue? Did you get like a tinge of Juno there? Yeah, no one talks like that. No one talks like that. I mean, nobody talks like anybody in a Tarantino movie, but but Uma Thurman was dialed up to 11 mm-hmm. with the, what should you say? I'll be there in two shakes of a something. A lamb's tail. A lamb's, who the fuck says that? <laughs> Juno McGuff says that. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Jackrabbit Slims, their waiter is Steve Buscemi, and here, we Wasted. I feel bad. A seminal actor, uh, one of the greatest of our generation, Steve Buscema, is just used here to be a poor man's Buddy Holly. Mr. Pink gets two lines Mm -hmm. in this movie after being one of the main characters in the director's previous movie. Well, that's why he's so droll. Is he just... He was pissed that he was just there for two fucking lines. <laughs> He's like, I should be, I should be Vincent. Yeah. I should be sitting on that car. Travolta can, should be the waiter. <laughs> you can hear the contempt in his voice of just saying, "What'll it be, Peggy Sue? Am I done? Is that good?" Most people remember the scene for the five dollar milkshake. It's a milkshake that's five dollars, but again, it takes about five minutes of disposition for us to get past it. Also, wait to date your movie, Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> because <laughs> that's a cheap milkshake these days. Yeah, uh, but again. Potential future pricing. That's the, true. The dollar may know. recede. Yeah. Uh, we get the Jackrabbit Swims twist contest. Uh, much like with all of Tarantino's movies, the heavy handedness of his soundtrack selection comes into play as uh, Chuck Berry blares over the, the speaker system. 
while Uma Thurman and John Travolta commence to do uh, what can only be described as white people dancing turned up to a thousand. Yeah, and that is this is John after, Mayer could be playing, and it would look it would sync up exactly the same. You can put any move, any song over them dancing, and it's just gonna be white people dancing. Exactly, trying way too hard. But this is after what twenty minutes of them just talking at that table. Nothing happens. It's just them talking about the pilot and talking about the guy that got thrown out of the window and talking about the fact that they don't have anything to talk about. <laughs> it's just, literally. My worst date was more lively than the date that they have in this movie. Uh, Travolta rolling his own cigarettes. Smoking indoors is allowed in this dystopian future that we're dealing with here. Uh, The twist contest, you know, who would have thought that large amounts of deep and passionate eye contact would lead to potential flirting as we return back to the Wallace homestead and the atmosphere and mood is a bit different. It's going in a direction of uh, romantic chemistry, I would say. Yeah, they're uh, they're a little looser. I think they they're smiling a little more, and uh, and Travolta, who's been consciously uh, just keeping his sex appeal in check, mm-hmm. he finally he's let loose. He's yeah. a little sweaty. He's becoming little Danny Zuko here. Yep, he's on tuck, and uh, and then Uma Thurman is doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. She she goes and put on some music and. Booze and cocaine will usually lead to situations like this. How could Marcellus not foresee this? In a moment of uh, sobriety or just basically, what the fuck are you doing this? John Travolta goes into the bathroom and has a, a lengthy dialogue with himself. It's it's so lengthy in Tarantino, by Tarantino standards, to, that it has to be chopped up into three different mm-hmm. shots. As we get more white people dancing from Uma Thurman in the living room. Yeah. Uh, now, this is Uma Thurman would be... Probably the I don't know if the strongest, but certainly the the one that gets the most screen time as far as female characters. I was really hoping you were say Uma Thurman would be the Virgin Mary, much like you made your analogy about Empire Records being about the story of Jesus. I was hoping that was. Gonna... <laughs> I, I I even I couldn't stretch this that much. <laughs> Ving Rhames just yeah, that's my girl. <laughs> you be Jesus. Uh, but so she is, you know, because you have very few female characters of importance in this movie. You have Uma Thurman. That aren't talked down to consistently. Well, that's the thing. Because yeah. you have that. You have, we'll talk about Bruce Willis's girlfriend when we get there, but that's. Rosanna Arquette is just yelled at for the duration of her screen time. Uh, then you have the sexy cab driver, who's just like a sex symbol. Esmeralda. Uh, and then. Miss uh, eyebrows. And then that's about it. I mean, Bonnie is mentioned, you know, in passing. You don't really see her. And then the, the girl at the. At the truck place, mm-hmm. so so Uma Thurman really carries Julia Sweeney. Julia her, Sweeney, yeah, there okay. you go. Uh, Uma Thurman carries like the lion's share of of the acting as far as like representing women mm-hmm. in this movie, right? And she hasn't really been given much up till now, right? She was she was talking to Travolta on the date. She danced. Mm-hmm. She danced a little more, and then literally she just. When things are about to get interesting, she's basically written out. Mm-hmm. She's just passed out for the next 10, 15 minutes, which is when things get really interesting. <laughs> she misses, like, the life of the party. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, my birthday party years ago, I got too drunk early and missed it when everything got fun. Except difference here was I wasn't ODing on heroin. I just had too many shots of but vodka. But you woke up and you'd be nominated for an Oscar? Apparently. You're like, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> what? Uh 
So she finds uh, the bag of heroin in Vincent's coat and assumes that it's cocaine. Always a safe bet just to assume any white powder you find in a stranger's jacket is cocaine. So snorts a line of it. Wouldn't you know it? Snorting heroin's not the best idea. How has this not happened before? Well, maybe it has. She's married to a gangster that probably has lots of drugs all over. And if she's so careless about consuming them, how is this not like a daily occurrence? <laughs> it could be. We don't know. Uh, Travolta comes out. Vincent finds Mia worse for wear. She's in pretty rough shape here. Dude, this is almost as gross as seeing Samuel Jackson eating that burger. She's she's foaming you at the hear mouth. The <laughs> <laughs> well, you hear the bubbles yeah. coming out of her mouth. It's, she's it's bleeding good. from her nose, foaming at the mouth. A uh, lot of old yeller throwback here, I, I feel like. Uh, um, that may have been what Tarantino's going for. I don't know. He's a, he's a strange guy. I do know he loves his old film. But Vincent, of course, in a panic, loads her into the car and drives her over to Eric Stoltz's house. Uh, and this just causes a, a, a large ruckus as he insists... Don't bring this dead girl into my house. You're going to have to bite the bullet and go to the hospital. And then Vincent Vega just basically blackmails him into helping him. He's like, if I go down, I'm going to have to tell him yeah. I'm going down because you didn't help me. Before he kills me, I'm going to make sure that he kills you too. So take her into the house. Uh, this is in the middle of the night, presumably. And they have to find an adrenaline shot to give to her. We do get incredible Travolta here with the... You know, he's Travolta-isms. He's been kind of hiding it for the for the whole movie. He's been kind of subdued. But here we get, oh, my God, get the shot. It's it's wonderful. This is what we've been waiting for in the summer of Travolta, and we're getting it early. Yeah, finally. Uh, I mean, early by this movie, but really it's been almost an hour of runtime by now. Um, it's also a good point now. I You know, we've, we've kind of settled into the movie, and mm -hmm. I think that, it's clear now that we're not. There's not a single redeemable character so far. Maybe you could say at this point in the movie that Bruce Willis would be sympathetic. He's the one guy that's being forced to throw a fight, and he's trying to just stay out of trouble. And mm. Bing Rames talks down to him. Travolta's rude to him. Nobody respects him. So you're thinking, okay, well maybe this is our hero, and yeah. his time will come, and we'll root for him, right? But Travolta. Almost, almost cheats, you know, uh, with with Uma Thurman, or rather, Uma Thurman almost cheats with him, mm -hmm. and uh, you know he's a murderer. Samuel it's most Jackson likely murderer. where it would have been heading if she didn't snort up his heroin. I mean, we we saw the writing on the wall, yes, or the mirror, as it were. <laughs> uh, so it, it, these are all reprehensible people, and I was having trouble rooting for them. I was like, I don't care that they're in trouble. Mm -hmm. I just. You can all go to hell. She can OD and they can go to prison. And Marcellus can kill you all. You guys, you got yourselves into these situations. Just, just wrap it up. <laughs> Give me more Bruce Willis. Because, yeah, we're over an hour in at this point. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it very little has happened. I mean, just now, suddenly, things are urgent and there's a problem. But before that, the biggest conflict was, you know, will Travolta like his steak? <laughs> the biggest question burning throughout the film was, you know, what they call a, a whopper in Europe. Jesus. Speaking of someone to root for, well, let's just cat out of the bag. She lives. They give her the adrenaline shot. She's okay. Has a real catty Juno-type line when she comes to life as well. They say, if you're okay, say something. She says something. I was expecting her to say, honest to blog, I'm okay. <laughs> and with that, we see Eric Stoltz out of the movie. Yes. Left too soon. Too soon. 
And also, well, I guess we see Uma Thurman out of the movie for all intents and purposes. She does have one line, but it's a throwaway one, and she's just a background character in one of our upcoming scenes. But speaking of someone to root for, enter Christopher Walken, his lone scene of the film, acting with a capital A. Dude, I I love Christopher Walken, but something this movie just taught me is that a little walking goes a lot way, and that's it's uninterrupted. Yes. For, you know, who knows how long. I stopped counting the minutes because I was just, I zoned out on his the voice. The stopwatch broke. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he tells the story of the gold watch. And it's it starts very, uh, I would say, moving and respectful towards our troops. Mm-hmm. And it, it becomes a butt joke by the end. Yep. It's a joke about me- traveling around with a big uncomfortable object up your backside. It played for laughs. An uncomfortable hunk of metal. That is what in, he calls it. In my ass. Uh, yeah, basically, before Christopher Walken was kind of who he is now, where everyone has an impression of him, Tarantino was a bit ahead of the curve on this. Of Let's just get him to come in and talk about shoving stuff up his ass. It'll be hilarious. And he did. And he liked it, apparently, because <laughs> several <laughs> years later, he was in Joe Dirt doing similar things. He found his More stick. respectable film, though. We can we can blame Pulp Fiction for giving Christopher Walken his stick. Getting Christopher Wa- comedy Christopher Walken. Yeah. This leads into, I believe, the present. What we've talked about so far, we're in the future some, in the past. I believe for the purpose of this movie, if I've followed it correctly, the present is Butch's fight. The present is Butch Coolidge and Marcellus Wallace's duel to the death. But this is what you said. This is where you're uh, robbed of your ability to root for Bruce Willis. Oh, yeah. Kills uh, a man in cold blood. He he kills, if I understood, if I read between the lines correctly, he kills Floyd Mayweather. Right? <laughs> Floyd Willis. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a bummer. No. The um, story is even less interesting now. That would be a time travel situation if he, he came to 2014. Alternate universe. Yes. Because uh, uh, Floyd Mayweather in 1993 would have been, I, I don't know, he would have been late teens. Well, that's why he that wouldn't him. have stopped <laughs> Butch Coolidge. He beat a man to death with his bare hands. He has that moment where you almost think like, "Oh, that's cool," because he finds out from the cabbie that's driving him away, his getaway driver, finds out that that Floyd died, mm-hmm. and he he has this moment where he's like, "Sorry, Floyd." Yeah, and you're like, "Oh, he feels bad. This is my guy." And then later, she's like, "How do you feel about killing a man?" It's like, you know what? I just found out he's dead. I don't feel bad about it. Doesn't bother me. He's on the getaway. He had a cab waiting for him, driven by um, Esmeralda Villalobos, or Villalobos, excuse me. And, again, could we have cut this out and been okay? We could have just seen him getting in a cab going away. Yep. But, no, Tarantino has to. I think this scene is constructed around that shot of her bare foot pushing on the gas. And that's that that classic Tarantino foot fetish that everybody talks about. And. uh, and also, uh, Bruce Willis is undressing in the back seat, and so we have an implied nude Bruce Willis smoking a cigarette, and I think that probably did something for Tarantino as well, much like a lot of America. I mean, Bruce Willis is a handsome man. I mean, yeah, if for some reason Travolta, uh, sweaty dancing Travolta didn't do it for you, and uh, if if uh, OD foaming at the mouth me, uh, Uma Thurman didn't do it for you, well, maybe a beat up. Bruce Willis undressing yeah. in the back of a cab. Maybe that's the ticket. That'll get your rocks off. Assuming the sexy cabbie is not what's, uh, what's yeah, distracting Yeah, if, if eyebrows are your thing, this uh, Esmeralda is definitely... Sexy Hispanic accents. Yeah. she. Uh, I wish we had more of her, though. She seems to be actually 
interested in the motives and uh principles of our characters she she was going to kill someone yes i think that she was on her way to killing someone after that conversation she gets butch to his hideaway with his what is this girlfriend wife fiance daughter <laughs> dude i like whatever sympathy i had for bruce willis up to this point that was very little that was left but it just goes out the window when you realize that he is dating a child mm-hmm. she you know I know there's guys that are into like the girls that talk like babies and whatever, but that's this is just creepy. I mean, she they're in a life or death situation, and she's talking about pot bellies and pancakes, and and Willis is just kind of like undressing her yeah. <laughs> at the same time. And uh, the night concludes with fellatio uh, or cunnilingus, excuse me, as well, it were. He goes down on her and but asks her to kiss it. <laughs> yeah just, even like th- yeah the dirty baby talk is just the worst i hero no more very off-putting yeah it within a matter of about 10 minutes they've destroyed our will to root for bruce Willis. yeah no i'm sorry i'm just i can't wait to see what bad things happen to him and then the movie mm-hmm. of course overdoes it so next morning he's looking for the aforementioned watch that's the only thing he cares about uh lena dunham's mom forgot to pack it when they were uh fleeing their apartment uh, he yells at her, throws a TV in her general direction, and basically he has to go face certain death just to get his watch back because he couldn't smuggle it in his ass. That was for Christopher Walken's punchline. Yeah, uh, like, like we talked about when we were watching the movie, missed opportunity, huge missed opportunity to not have Bruce Willis reenact Christopher Walken's monologue while mm-hmm. he's explaining to his girlfriend why the watch is so important. Almost verbatim. Yeah, I would have. I would have. Love to see that happen. It would have made me appreciate Bruce Willis's performance a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably would have endeared me to him a little, you know, which is something that we really need at this point in the movie. Yes. So he goes back to his apartment and shitty apartment for how much money apparently Ving Rams was paying him. Uh, but he gets his golden watch and then he's he decides to stay for breakfast. He wants some pop tarts. Uh, he happened to miss the enormous fucking gun on his kitchen counter until he put the pop tarts in the toaster. Uh, out pops John Travolta from the shitter, and we found out that he was basically there just waiting for him. Uh, which, Let his guard down, though, metaphorically and literally. Right. I I don't understand. This is just dumb. Travolta has proven to be somewhat resourceful in mm-hmm. the previous story. You know, I think that he was faced with a crisis. It took forever for the movie to get to the crisis, but when the crisis happened, he, he handled it. He, he had his wits about him. He, he was sharp. He, yeah, he kept Mia Wallace alive. Uh but here, the rookiest of rookie mistakes, he goes into the bathroom and leaves his gun outside? Yeah. What the hell? Why wouldn't you take the gun with you? Uh, fortunately for him, he's able to regenerate, uh, but he is shot and killed in this scene. Uh, Bruce <laughs> He Willis, loses one life in this one. He does. Yeah. Well, I, my understanding, when, when we go from here, it's kind of like a source code situation where he's able to enact a certain scenario with different outcomes. But, okay. Yeah. So, oh, I thought that maybe his save point was like way back in the diner, so he regenerates in the diner. No, much like source code, I feel he chose his own destiny in the end, so it, it's kind of open to interpretation from there. But uh, I do believe here he's sent back. His brain is able to replay the situation from earlier in the day, I believe, when they uh, came across Brad and his band of misfits. But this body is done. This this uh, vessel has has concluded. Yeah, and he's uh, it's pretty pretty bad. Like uh, his 
He's done that thing where he died with his eyes open. Oh, it's brutal. Yeah. But he was shot and then fell into the glass uh, shower, the shower wall. And so he's all sorts of dead, shot and stabbed up. And does Bruce grab his Pop-Tarts to go? I don't know. I know he wipes the gun. Yes. He's mindful enough to do that, but not to close Travolta's eyes. <laughs> or to... Not uh, He wipes his fingerprints off a gun that's in his apartment. <laughs> It's not a situation where he shot him in the park or some shit, and it could be open to investigation. He takes off. He definitely has an air of moxie and confidence about him at this point. I've killed two men in one day. Hell yeah. And he pulls up to a red light, and this is where things just get this all were, sorts of off the rails. This is where I, I feel like this is where Tarantino just kind of took a break. And somebody else came in and just started writing their own fan fiction about what would happen uh, in the real script of Pulp mm-hmm. Fiction. Because there's, uh, first off, the huge, unimaginable coincidence of him stopping at a red light at the same time that Marcellus Wallace, the man that hates him more than anybody else in the world right now, mm-hmm would be crossing the street. So what are the odds of that? That is insane. And not even I in like thought, Grand Theft Auto is this an occurrence too often. Right. Not even a video game would have like that kind of thing where, where it would play that way. You would they would say to, that's unrealistic. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I try to give the movie some slack. I thought that maybe uh, he was there with Travolta mm-hmm. and he was getting breakfast for Travolta. Unlikely that the big boss would just... Uh, give me a Danish. <laughs> Creep cheese. <laughs> but also, I mean, by now, Willis has driven a few blocks, so why the fuck is Marcellus walking all the way? Like, to And the- especially, Marcellus Wallace is supposed to be this all-omnipotent, powerful gangster with zillions of dollars, and he's in the fucking barrio going to, like, Taco Donut Hut or some shit. I don't... I don't... It makes no sense. Yeah, and here's the kicker. We've seen this movie plenty of times, so we know that's Marcellus Wallace. Yeah. If you... And you pointed out what we're watching. We haven't seen... Marcellus Wells's face and not all of us Alex are as familiar with Ving Rhames as you were when you watched this movie so if you don't know that that's Ving Rhames when you actually see Ving Rhames crossing the street you don't know that that's Marcellus Wallace you mm-hmm. don't know why Bruce Willis is reacting a certain way it just is more of that embedded racism in the film of just <laughs> Bruce Willis wanting to run over a minority like how dare that black guy have a whole box of donuts taking it from the white man <laughs> Uh, and as if this movie hasn't kicked you in the nuts enough yet, or if you haven't thrown up your arms in an exasperated sigh, needless Kathy Griffin cameo. <laughs> what in, more in, can you say? In my memory of the movie, she was the one that got shot. In the, but no, it's somebody else, some random lady uh, that I'm probably making this up. I was going to say she- we would all be so lucky, and I thought that was mean. But then Kathy Griffin got on all that shit recently for that picture she had where she had Trump's decapitated head. Did you see that? I I don't know about recently. That was... Was that? I don't know. It, it, thanks time in, America, in my it life, feels, much like Pulp Fiction, is not linear. Yeah. It feels like there's been 20 other scandals since uh, Kathy Griffin. <laughs> Whatever. The, we've vented our political opinions plenty on this, but I remember seeing that and I thought it was a bit much because like... It was I, insanely detailed and grotesque. I think the reason it feels like it's been longer, or maybe has been, is just because I've heard it brought up so much ah. that uh, as a as a but see, Kathy Griffin did this. I was like, yeah, that sucked too. Yeah, <laughs> and also don't use her to represent a lot of people. I mean, she's Kathy Griffin. I'll just say, you know what? She was in Pulp Fiction as well. She was. 
Case closed. Uh, but yeah, she doesn't get shot. Somebody, some other lady in white shorts gets shot. And it really, she looked like the lady that gets shot in Reservoir Dogs, but that could be just me tying all the movies together because that's what Tarantino likes to do. So, Ving Rhames is very disoriented, firing his gun in a haphazard manner at Bruce Willis, who's running away. Both these guys are really fucked up, bloody, hurt. When Bruce Willis tucks into a pawn shop, grabs a bottle off the counter, and starts beating the shit out of Ving Rhames when he comes in. Goes to shoot him in the face. Uh, I did appreciate Ving Rhames here, Marcellus Wallace, going down swinging. He's just on death's door, getting the shit pummeled out of him. I'm going to kill you. And Bruce goes to shoot him. I mean, let's backtrack about 30 seconds. We should have known we were in trouble when we came in that pawn shop and there was a Confederate flag hanging up. No good's coming. And no good does come of this. Speaking of Trump. (laughs) Jesus. So the owner of this pawn shop uh, holds them at gunpoint. Who is this guy, by the way? I don't know. I mean, he's he's hanging out with the all-stars here. Robert Chong, Tommy (laughs) Chong's less-known white brother. Because you got... He's about to be in, in a sort of, uh, I don't know if I should call it an orgy, but... I was going to say, I don't think you have too many A-listers that were chomping at the bit for this role. <laughs> well, the guy the guy the, from The Mask. The bad guy from The Mask, Dorian, who did this and The Mask. I mean... <laughs> it, was riding, <laughs> it was riding high from The Mask. No, he, he did just, The Mask after this. Oh, after this. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, The Mask was mid-90s. Was it? I, I don't know, but I know Cameron Diaz was hot as fuck in that movie. <laughs> I want to say they're both the same year, and maybe, I don't know. See, he was instead of the mask, and he's like, I just got cast in this Pulp Fiction. Dorian in the mask is punished by someone puts a golf tee in his mouth and then hits a ball off it and hurts his mouth really bad. That's good family fun. What he does to Ving Rhames here is unforgivable. This is, we're talking about how... We've been following pretty unlikable, reprehensible characters, mm-hmm. and it's almost like they recognized Tarantino. 75% or, into shooting, they realized, <laughs> oh, wait, we don't have anyone you can root for in this movie. It's like, okay, we're ready. We're too deep into it for a major rewrite, so instead what we do is how, how do you make them sympathize? How do you make someone sympathize with, with these murderers, uh, drug dealers, what have you? It's like, oh, well, let's put them against redneck rapists. <laughs> And by default, they're going to look like the good guys. I mean, it's you cannot. The power of that combination. It's just I was on the edge of my seat again, and I've seen the movie plenty of times. So these guys choose Marcellus first. They begin doing their whatever with him. Bruce wriggles free from his uh, confines. How his, can you like you completely skip the gimp? I, that wasn't on accident. <laughs> I I have this pet theory that Tarantino's inside the gimp suit. You know that was Anthony Hopkins in there. <laughs> he really slimmed down for that. <laughs> the, the slim 90s. Uh, I just... I don't want to go back to pointing out how little ma- it makes sense, like anything that happens in this movie, but why would they leave the gimp guarding Bruce Willis when the gimp clearly has... He's literally chained up. Right. So in the event Bruce Willis gets away, he can't even chase after him. But it, that's exactly what happens. Bruce Willis breaks free, and the best the Gimp can do is moan and try to... He can't even scream because mm-hmm. he has a zipper uh, where his mouth should be. So They didn't think this plan through. No. <laughs> Much like Tarantino did not think this movie through. Uh, so Butch escapes. 
he's going to leave, and then in his moment of, I guess, heroism, realizes, I can't, you know, that guy just tried to kill me, but I can't in good conscience leave him down there to face that fate. Because redneck rapists are the worst. Exactly. They bring us all together in one common goal against something. So... Uh, as you pointed out, though, he takes his sweet-ass time getting down there. Right. And, and it's not like he can't hear what's happening, because we can all hear it, and it's just terrifying. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he he just takes his sweet time pondering which weapon he's going to use to rescue Marcellus. This is like the fucking... Uh, I'm pretty sure if Marcellus knew what happened, like he'd seen that, he'd be like, just take the hammer. I'll th- be fine. This is the pre like Just come down here. Help me. <laughs> This is like uh, in a slasher movie, the prelude to the climax. This is where our hero, hero or heroiness uh, are selecting what weapon they're going to take to battle against Freddy or Jason or right. Michael Myers. And he eventually settles on a fucking uh, katana, which, lucky for him, it worked out. I wouldn't trust a pawn shop katana to be sharp enough to kill a man, but what do I know? It's it's a Tarantino universe. Of course it was going it, to... It's not just a katana. It's probably, like I told you, the, the blade from Kill Bill. Yeah. It is kind of a, of course, it's this. So he goes down there, he kills um, Robert Chong, and then frees Ving Rhames, and Ving Rhames then shoots Dorian with a shotgun, and tells him that he's going to kill him, but he's going to torture the shit out of him first. And then they kind of make up, but Ving Rhames still is able to talk down to him, in a sense, and tell him, don't ever come back or I'll kill you then. Also, don't tell anybody about this? No, yeah, number one, don't (laughs) tell nobody about this. Which I can understand. That's no need. So Ving Rhames still wins in the end. He obviously had a hor- horrible okay. few minutes there. The fine win. <laughs> he had a horrible few minutes, but he still controls the situation with Bruce Willis, and he's gonna. Dorian is gonna be paying dearly here shortly, so he's gonna have his vindication, and also still is the. He knows not to be fucked with, and Bruce Willis respects that. He doesn't think any less of him because of this. He he knows. Don't fuck with Ving Rhames. This guy's going to be in the goods in 10 years. It was longer than that. Shit. It was like 15 years. That was just my plug for the goods, because that's just a good movie. And that's real talk also, just creeping in here. So that's it for um, Ving Rhames. Bruce Willis steals Grace, which is Dorian's motorcycle. I'm sorry. I keep calling him Dorian. Zed is his name in Pulp Fiction. Well, Dorian Zed. (laughs) Dorian is Zed. Uh, Who also, I think, just like to hit every stereotype ever. He's a he's a mall cop. Mm-hmm. I I asked you because I wasn't sure. He has the big shiny star, and I was like, is this just like an overzealous cop, mm-hmm. which would make him the only cop in the movie? But no, it's it's a mall cop. Also, like the only kind of law enforcement, the closest it comes to law enforcement. Well, depending the, on which period of time we're dealing with in this movie, I'm not. I, it could be anarchy, or Marcellus Wallace kind of runs everything in whatever city they're in. It's hard to tell because like, there's not a, there's no cops there's no law enforcement anywhere every to be few found. minutes I write the note where are the cops there's there's shots being fired everywhere people OD and people dying cars crashing into each other no sign of the cops yeah uh, John Travolta crashes his car into Eric Stoltz's house in the middle of the night no cops <laughs> that's true that's like maybe this is all taking place on uh, uh, what's those movies where murder is legal for the purge the purge this is. <laughs> This. Everybody's like locked inside their houses because they don't want to die. <laughs> Travolta's on the Tra- loose, baby. Travolta's in the comeback trail. Yes. And, uh, stay away. So Travolta materializes and uh, comes back in 
I guess we're and again. My understanding, it's like a source code situation where we're replaying a previous scenario that has a different outcome than before. Um, we get Alexis Arquette uh, unloading a magnum, not Jerry Seinfeld, not Jerry Seinfeld, uh, unloading a magnum in Vince and Jules' direction, and just in a flashback to Dumb and Dumber. It's like Alexis, you're alive and you're a horrible shot. Misses completely. Um, oh, and I'm sorry. Bruce Willis's final line is when he steals the mo- the bo- motorcycle and goes to uh, pick up his uh, Lena his, Dunham's mom, his child bride, his mail order Russian bride. Uh, she asks whose motorcycle that is. He says Zed. She asks who's Zed. And Zed's dead. Baby. And then a 38 special song plays over the closing credits of the film. <laughs> So Travolta is back on the case, and this um, we get title cards for each section, and this one's called the Bonnie situation. In essence, uh, everything goes as should. They get the case back, but they take Phil Lamar, the only remaining uh, man from the apartment. I don't know if hostage. It's never explained what they were going to do with him to begin with. I, I I thought that he was their mole, like they was their inside man. That's but they treat him like shit. Yeah. Uh, Samuel Jackson is constantly belittling him, and Travolta threatens to shoot him if he doesn't keep quiet. Yeah. So it does feel like a hostage, too. Uh, it's hard to tell. It's uh, I would say it's just casual ra- racism, but uh, but no, because Samuel Jackson is in on it. So. He just agrees to it. Yeah, it, it really... So you think that this is a echoes of his character in Django Unchained, also a Tarantino movie? Oh, I don't know about all that, uh, but he, he seems to have no issue with it, although you could say the reason for that is he's still traumatized by being the gun fired at him, and he believes this to be divine intervention, the reason that they weren't killed by Alexis Arquette. Yeah, the, Travolta may be back on the screen, but really this last segment is Samuel Jackson's story. Yeah. And Jules... Begins ranting and raving about how this was divine intervention. He's going to get out of the game. He's going to deliver this case, and then he's done. Travolta, um, even in his new materialized form, still is committing these rookie mistakes. He just is handing handling a gun and turns around in the back seat and just points it at Phil Lamar. Uh, finger on the trigger, all that. Phil Lamar is posing no threat at this point, other than being on Mad TV a few years from there, which we could have avoided that altogether. Um, and then he shoots Marvin in the face. Oh my God! I shot Marvin. I shot Marvin in the face. Get the shot. Uh, again, I mean, at this point, you would think we're like past the two-hour mark in this movie. You would think we'd be used to just the nonsense that happens mm-hmm. to kind of propel the the, the story. But forward. to put it over the top, Tarantino used about twenty gallons of fake blood and viscera in this scene just to make sure you know how wacky and kooky it is. Right. It's not just that he shot. Uh, Marvin in the face. It's more like he detonated Marvin's head, and it just there's blood and it's brain. It's like a Gallagher everywhere. show in the back of that car. Uh, so obviously and understandably, Jules freaks out. What the fuck? I got to get this car off the road. Uh, the only person he knows in the area of town they're in is Jimmy, and this is where we get our M Night Shyamalan cameo. Oh my god, the low point in the movie. That's just. An old time when you've already anyway, overstayed but... your welcome, and then you just keep throwing shit at the wall. I just wanted to say, dude, it's too late for this shit. <laughs> I mean, if you're gonna cameo, if you're gonna give yourself an extended cameo. Do it in the first thirty minutes of the movie. Don't do it when we're ready for the for the credits to roll, and you still have a whole segment to go. 
But this is Tarantino just coming in and talking about coffee and making using everybody racial else, slurs. <laughs> yes. Well, even before that, I was just gonna say making everybody else look good. Mm-hmm. As far as like, you thought the acting was weak? <laughs> Let me show you. <laughs> Much like the uh, rapist rednecks, it was. They got to this point in the movie, and it was like, all right, we kind of need to bring it back and make these guys more relatable. Um, we gotta make people appreciate their acting. So. So what we do get from this is Jimmy's able – they tuck the car in the garage and they need to figure out what to do. So we get an expedited cameo from um, – why am I just now blanking? Harvey Keitel? Harvey Keitel. Thank you. We were the wolf about. himself? The wolf. Harvey Keitel. We Mr. Get White. Mr. White. An, an expedited cameo. Uh, he was getting paid – by the hour here, and he won an in and out, and uh, was not getting paid by the hour. Excuse me. Uh, he got there both in the movie and in real life. You could tell he wanted to be done with this. He's uh, his dialogue has been delivered at times two. Yes, it's like yeah. If you press the fast forward one and a half button on a PlayStation Three, <laughs> yeah. that's what he's delivering his dialogue at. He gets there, tells them what to do, gets the car cleaned up, and then um, gets all the while up. belittling Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> talking down to him. Uh, Really reminiscent of, in my mind, Gene Hackman speaking to Wes Anderson on the set of, uh, I, what is that movie? Royal Tenenbaums? Yep. And um, we're in and out. Do you have any notes here about Harvey Keitel's cameo? Uh, just that I didn't buy it. <laughs> I mean, I just, not that this story has been realistic by any stretch of the imagination, but when he showed up, it just felt like, well, we need somebody to come in to, like, do what these guys can do for some reason. So let's just... Let's just create this character whose sole function apparently is to be, uh, uh, you know, a fixer. He's like the cleaner. It's like that fucking heavy-handed Sam Elliott cameo up in the air. Exactly. Yeah, it's like uh, let's have him come in to to just not not even say the message of the movie because I don't think this movie has a message, but just to wrap things up. It's just Pulp Fiction, fellas. End credits. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He... He's like at some sort of dinner party at nine in the morning, ten in the morning. I, I know he's like at a bris or like a bar mitzvah or some shit, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because we know what time it is because they when they first get to Brett's apartment, Bonnie, the situation. Oh, that's right, Bonnie's also she's coming at what time? Because I, I know that it was like seven twenty-two in the morning she, I think when they get to the she, apartment. She's supposed to be home like at nine, I think, is when her shift ends. So, yeah. And they get also there. Bonnie's black. Like, mm-hmm. we see her, like, briefly in, like, an imaginary situation, uh-huh. and yet Tarantino's dropping the N-word, like, the Tarantino character is mm-hmm. dropping the N-word, like... He didn't know he was being filmed. <laughs> in, I mean, it's like, Bunny's not around, so she's not, she's not gonna mind. Horrible. Horrible. Yeah. Uh, so we get the car cleaned up, uh, the disposal of Marvin, they hose off uh, Jules and Vincent... To get them clean and presentable. They completely shy away from having naked Travolta and naked Samuel L. Jackson. They tease us about it because Travolta is like, it's just necessary. And, and Harvey Keitel says, yes, bare ass. Yeah. And then they keep their shorts on. <laughs> so make up your mind. Tarantino couldn't pull the trigger on that one. <laughs> That $8 million budget, they were stretching it thin by that point. Travolta's like, I may be box office poison, but I'm not doing this. <laughs> uh, before we get the actual disposal of the car, they, uh, the wolf has a body shop in his back pocket. We get this horrifying shot of uh, Marvin's body in the trunk of the car. It's it's not even drawn attention to. They're just shutting the trunk. and. But yeah. also, I was surprised to see that there was that much of his head left. 
mm-hmm. because the way it exploded, I would he would be unrecognizable. I would yeah. think that it would just be... Or they should have committed to it and done like Friday the 13th Part 2 where it's like just a styrofoam head that's painted and with the red freckles on it. Uh, and then apparently Quentin Tarantino had just heard about Saturday Night Live from 1990 and wanted a Julius Sweeney cameo in his movie. And he was like, oh my god, have you guys seen the skit? It's Pat. We're going to have that girl in the movie. Uh, she she repeats the Uma Thurman joke from earlier where uh, Harvey Keitel tells her Okay, well now say, say good night, Julie Sweeney. Good night, Julie Sweeney, and she's like, good night, Julie Sweeney. It's like really, twice in one movie. Tarantino <laughs> forgot he had, uh, he forgot, which leads us to our next scene, where we go to um, again. Travolta has been sent back in um, in time, in time <laughs> to, to right the wrong to prohibit this scenario in which the abomination kills all these innocent people, and. So that would make sense why the line isn't delivered the same. What we're referring to here is uh, the pumpkin character, uh, Amanda. No, Amanda's Honey Bunny. Amanda Plummer. Is Honey Bunny. Excuse me. Right. Pumpkin is the, the abomination. Uh, Honey Bunny, at the beginning of the movie, says, if any of you fucking pigs move, I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you. Iconic quote from Pulp Fiction. It's on the soundtrack. It is. Here she says, if any of you fucking pigs move, I'll execute all of you motherfuckers. Right. It's different. It's jarring. It's time travel. It's a different scenario here. That's there's, you giving Tarantino a lot of credit. There's a glitch in the Matrix. It's a black cat. It is. Yeah. I I, I thought Tarantino just... goes, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought Tarantino just didn't catch it. If he can't catch, also possible. If he can't catch Julia Sweeney repeating the joke from Thurman, then anything goes. But still, at this point, I was having to basically structure my own film because I couldn't understand the timetable of this. I think when you spend so much time writing about, you know, TV pilots and food massages and like all this other nonsense, uh, irrelevant bullshit that they talk about, you forget about the important stuff, mm-hmm. like. It, Continuity. This, exactly. Does this line match? <laughs> yes. Has this line been said before? Does this movie make sense? Is this movie about anything? <laughs> Where is Ice-T dressed up like a giant dog? We've been waiting for days to get him on set. So in this scene, um, it's either this scenario is played back in the basically time traveling or somehow we're connected to the beginning of the film all over again. It's a 12 monkeys situation we've got here. And Honey Bunny and Pumpkin hold the uh, diner hostage. They're going to begin collecting wallets when Jules um, obviously ain't having none of that because he tries to steal the briefcase from him. And Travolta conveniently is in the bathroom. Yes. Somehow this time he f- remembered to take his gun with him. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't just leave it on the He d- learned that in his table. previous life before <laughs> yeah. he materialized again. Yeah. Um, and this is also on the heels of them... Uh, we're actually we're making this movie sound like it moves at a faster clip than it actually does because we get a lengthy conversation about bacon and animals uh, and miracles at, between Travolta and Samuel Jackson, and it goes on for a while. And an incredible uh, move that I would probably pull if I was defeated in an argument when Travolta doesn't have a counterpoint, he just says, "I'm going to go take a shit." So, yeah. listeners, if you're ever in a struggling situation of debate, use that as a pause to go and collect your thoughts. It'll work on Twitter, too. It, yes, very much so. Um, so, 
long dialogue exchange between Tim Roth and Samuel Jackson, the gist of which being, take my money, you're learning a lesson from this, give me my wallet, and I can't give you my briefcase. Meanwhile, yeah. there's guns being pointed all around. You would think it would all get a lot more exciting once the guns are out, mm-hmm. but no. <laughs> yeah. It's still more talking. Uh, More quoting of the Bible. And then he reads back his passage of the Bible he likes to quote, and then he kind of just interprets it. He's thinking out loud what the interpretation can mean to Tim Roth, and Tim Roth's like, you've got a gun pointed at my face. Can we try to calm this shit down? Travolta comes out at some point. And points the gun at uh, Honey Bunny, and just a bunch of confusion. In a moment of comedic brilliance, (laughs) the diner owner who's trying to calm everyone down what does he say? Like, quit causing trouble or something like You're that? You're gonna get us all killed. <laughs> yeah, stop causing trouble. <laughs> that was actually Alfred Tarantino, Quentin's dad. He used him for that, that performance. Um, I don't think this teaches Tim Roth any sort of lesson. He looks bored by the end of it. <laughs> Not just bored, but he walks away loaded. Yeah. And we're supposed to celebrate Sam Jackson as this hero that, oh, he's so cool. He didn't kill him, and he gave him money. Yeah, but he also gave him everybody else's money. Mm-hmm. I would be so pissed if I was one of the patrons at that diner. Absolutely. He had him at gunpoint. He could have just, you want to be a real hero, make him return everybody else's money, and then you can give him the 1500 in your wallet. Yeah. But, of course not, because these are terrible people. They don't care about anyone but themselves. Exactly, and the movie is all about celebrating them. So so they get their hero shot where they tuck their gigantic guns mm-hmm. into their, uh, their pants. And then they just let their loops run. And, uh, and uh, the movie ends with me wondering what if they're just stuck to forever repeat that scenario, where in time... Right, what, what's going to happen next? Will Travolta be caught uh, with his gun in the bathroom this time? Mm-hmm. Right? Do you think that? Do you think he gets to shoot Bruce Willis? Will Bruce Willis stop for breakfast? Here's the thing: if Bruce Willis had gone in and out, if he hadn't stopped for the pop pop tarts, Travolta wouldn't have come out of the bathroom. So they never would have crossed paths. Mm -hmm. So, I think this time around, Willis's desire for pastries may not be as strong. We'll never know. But here's the thing: it's it's like a. Have you seen the? Benjamin Button, the curious case of Benjamin Button. Uh, of course, I have. Okay, that masterpiece, in well, modern cinema. There's that sequence that explains how uh, Kate Blanchett's character gets hit by the car, mm-hmm. and it's like a succession of little things that everything. If this had happened differently, then this wouldn't have happened. But because this happened, this happened, and this happened, and so if if uh, Bruce Willis doesn't stop for the pastries, he gets out of there sooner, so he doesn't hit that red light, which means that he doesn't see Marcellus. His desire for Pop-Tarts set off a peristaltic chain reaction that led to <laughs> Bing Rings being raped. Exactly. So, really, Pop-Tarts are to blame. If he had stopped and he had had breakfast with his girlfriend... As she requested. Right. He hadn't fallen asleep after a shower... We'd be in a different world. John Travolta would still be walking among us. <laughs> he wouldn't have done Battlefield Earth. <laughs> well, I don't know if we could have ever stopped that disaster from that happening. That was happening no matter what. All right, we ready for real talk? Uh, yes, let's do real talk. Uh, uh, like we did in the last episode, uh, with the live stream for The Cure 2.0 is happening on the 18th. This episode comes out on the 15th. So we'll give him one more shout-out with their clip. And uh, if you... Don't like cancer? This is a good... Uh, Which typically, <laughs> a general rule of thumb, you should not. Yeah. I mean, I would suggest you be against cancer. 
I would hope. <laughs> so hopefully the live stream will uh, encourage you to donate uh, for cancer research. Excellent. I'm Nick. And I'm Justin. We are the Epic Film Guys, and we'd like just a moment of your time to talk about an extremely important event coming up this May. Last year, we hosted the live stream for The Cure, a 12-hour live stream fundraiser where we raised $2,500 for the Cancer Research Institute. 86 cents out of every dollar raised goes to research toward finding a cure. And this year, we're aiming to smash that goal, and we need your help to do it. Join us from May 18th through the 20th for 30 hours of amazing live stream content from us and a whole host of amazing podcasters who will be joining us to try to reach $5,000. For more information, please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com. Together, we can make a difference. Okay, we are recording for Real Talk. All right. I we got like over an hour out of that. Well, it is. It's a, it's fun a to riff movie. on, yeah. But um, Pulp Fiction premiered at Cannes Film Festival on May twelfth, nineteen ninety four. Was released in the United States on October fourteenth of nineteen ninety four. Uh, budget of in the ballpark of eight and a half million. Box office return of a little bit over two hundred and ten million. So definitely, uh, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, this put Tarantino on the map. Reservoir Dogs didn't set the world on fire at the box office. Um, and so this one kind of, I think it had a limited release because of that. There there were still some uncertainties about him. But this movie was nominated for many awards. It's, uh, despite only winning one Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, it was nominated for Best Actor, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Film Editing, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Supporting Actress. As we were talking about when we were watching the movie, that that year was... A murderer's row of film. Uh, you had uh, Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, um, Shawshank Redemption, Shawshank, Bullets Over Broadway, Ed Wood. It was um, it was one of those years. It's kind of hard to think that all of that like things that are revered so highly. That, right, and you can't get mad at who ended up winning because mm-hmm. they were all really good. Written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, of course. Ninety four percent on Rotten Tomatoes. This movie is a masterpiece. Well, not to some people. I, I'm aware there's six percent of the population that uh, disagrees. I got a few green splotches from Run Tomatoes. You also got a new phone. No, it's the same phone. Oh, Different you got a case. new case. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Kelly got me that case, and uh, she also got me the, you know, that thing to keep you from dropping your phone. Mm, no. No. Uh, well, as you no. crack the <laughs> screen shows, I don't use it. I don't like it. But it's like this little handle that goes on the back of your. Oh, phone. a pop socket. Yeah, okay. yeah, that thing. I just, I, I can't do it. Uh, and for contrarian wrestlers, Kelly is Julio's fiance. Yes, mm. she gets me stuff. Yeah. Uh, all right. So Mark Vincenti from Palo Alto Weekly says this fictional world, though rendered imaginatively, can't sustain the movie. Should have said he should have said this pulp fictional world. <laughs> uh, Thomas Delapa from Boulder Weekly says there's cleverness at work, but Tarantino's 154-minute film rambles with nihilist fantasy and pop in jokes. I thought it said poop in jokes at first. <laughs> Jesus. Stanley Kaufman from The New Republic says, The way that this picture has been so widely ravened up and drooled over verges on the disgusting. Pulp fiction nourishes, abets cultural slumming. Mm. Too far. Yeah. 
And finally, Kenneth Turan from the Los Angeles Times says, The result, especially in the scenes involving Bruce Willis as a nervy boxer, can be long patches of dialogue that must have tickled Tarantino, but will not necessarily resonate for anyone else. I can categorically say that is an incorrect take. One of the, uh, I mentioned to Julio while we were watching the movie, easily one of, if not the most um, copied and parodied film that's been released in my lifetime. I, as we were going through it, we were watching it, and I just kept recognizing lines of things that people say now. Mm-hmm. So it's just that is a tasty burger is like part of the American pop culture <laughs> lexicon. Like that's a, a common phrase, as is um, you know what they call a, a Big Mac and right yeah. royal with cheese is just. If you've seen the movie, you know it, and if you haven't seen the movie, you've probably heard of it anyway. And um, it's Zed's one of those things dead. like watching, yeah, Zed's dead. Oh, should I shot Marvin in the face? Yep. Um, I mean, if you want to quote some of Quentin Tarantino's lines, you can. <laughs> I'm not going to, but uh, you should do it in public. Yeah, should, like Jason Lee and Chasing Amy. You should do it in the comfort of your own home, exactly, where you won't be judged. Uh, so before we go much further, this is real talk. This is where we divulge our real take on the the film that we. Uh, roasted or praised again mission statement of the podcast being to just show that art is subjective and you can be nitpicky about anything and just arguing against the rotten tomato system obviously pulp fiction is not one of the we will do movies that are very highly rated that julio and i may think are not good but i hope i can speak for both of us in saying this is not one of those movies oh it's so much fun to watch yeah yes i think i can uh well first is this your favorite tarantino you said that right Mm -hmm. okay so it's also mine uh even though I like a lot of his movies. I like Jackie Brown. I like Django. Reservoir uh, Dogs is right. Uh Inglourious Bastards. Inglourious Bastards is excellent. Uh, I think, I mean, we've mentioned it before. I'm not a big fan of uh, Death Proof. I think that's the only movie of his that I actually don't think is good. And then Django is good, but I don't think it's as I good as all the other Leo's ones. performance takes it over the top for yeah. me. Uh, and then when he's gone, then the rest the movie keeps going, and yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, then it sucks. Yeah. Um, not sucks, but yeah, you, it's, it's, not it's clearly good. missing something. Right. Uh, but yeah, so this, it's, at the same time, it might be the movie of his that says the least, maybe. And I was watching it this time, I was watching it, specifically to figure out like if there's any substance beyond the style and the style is great and i don't need the substance when you have style that's this great two and a half hours fly by when you're watching this movie yeah because it's just so much fun every time that so well acted and presented. yeah where a normal movie would be wrapping things up and kind of going into autopilot this movie keeps throwing like funny things at you like new things new ways of showing stuff uh i mean we're like deep into the the third story when they call Harvey Keitel and he's like, it's a 30 minute drive. I'll be there in 10 minutes. And then he shows up and there's that little subtitle. And Nine says, minutes Nine. and 34 seconds later. That kind of stuff is, you know, you're not used to seeing that in a third act. By yeah. then you're just kind of like barreling towards the end. But here you just, he's just taking his time having fun with it. Now, the criticism I've heard about Pulp Fiction that could be maybe true or at least valid depending on how you feel about the movie when you're watching it, is that there is no moral center. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, we're riffing a little bit about that on Contrarian's Corner, right? These yeah. are all reprehensible people. These are all murderers. 
And it's not like the movie is necessarily trying to redeem them. No. The Sam Jackson character, and we were talking about this as we were watching the movie, might be the closest that gets to that, right? He has an actual arc. He changes. Everybody else is kind of like doing the same. There you go. The line from this movie I quote the most is... Uh, I had what alcoholics refer to as a moment of clarity. I've quoted that on this podcast before. Yep. So, yeah. I thought you were going to say that you quote, uh, you are the weak. <laughs> and, uh, dude, <laughs> and then, <laughs> so good. Just the yes. shame that washes over Tim Roth. Uh, but I'm sorry, continuing. Uh, well, so I think that, if anything, the Sam Jackson character might be the argument that counters that accusation that there's no moral center no moral actually i had a a teacher and this is the first time i heard that that argument a teacher that would say that he preferred forrest gump to pulp fiction because that was a big argument back in the day (laughs) yeah Uh, because pulp fiction didn't have he didn't say moral center he said it didn't take a moral stance and i was like fucking i don't know 16 i think at the time and i was like "Ah, what are you talking about i don't know what you're talking about and now i'm older and i get it you know you're showing a bunch of people doing all these bad things, free of judgment. Mm-hmm. But really, as a filmmaker, you always take a stance. So with Serentino working like extra hard at not taking that stance. But if you're really paying attention, the Sam Jackson character does have that change. It's not just about the fact that he almost got killed. Mm-hmm. It's that he chooses not to kill uh, Tim Roth. Yeah, That moment is just amazing. Like yeah. he, When he puts the, the gun down, uh, it's not super underlined in the movie even though it's the climax yeah <laughs> but you know i think that it can get lost when you see like everything else that's happening all the pyrotechnics and all the like quippy dialogue and the dance scenes and the drugs and all that stuff but i think there is a heart to yeah. pull fiction it's just that it's not you don't feel it as much as something like jackie brown or Django unchained or inglorious bastards where i think that the the moral position they take it's not just a lot easier to see, but also a lot more relatable. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, of course, everybody hates Nazis. Yeah. So we're going to be, we get that. You know, Slavery is not good. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so with this movie, Travolta was in the doldrums, uh, as we talked about. We've used the phrase, uh, we found it in a review, and we've used it ever since, the box office poison phrase. Uh, but Quentin Tarantino has said that he wrote this script with Travolta in mind to play the Vincent character, and, and this brought him back. Like, he was... In a big way. And much didn't come of it, but... <laughs> well, I think that... with Obviously, I mean, this is a really dumb thing to say, right? Without Pulp Fiction, nothing else that Travolta's done since would have happened. Correct. Right? It's like, because the Pulp Fiction is that we have... Michael and Phenomenon and... Face Off. Face but off. All the movies that we're going to do during the summer of Travolta basically happened... Well, no. We're also going to do uh, Look Who's Talking To. So. Battlefield Earth would have happened. <laughs> Regardless, I don't know that he had the cloud to pull it off, though. Without Pulp Fiction, that's a very good point. Yeah, because he didn't have the cloud to pull it off in the eighties, right? Yeah. So it, it, everything, every big movie after Pulp Fiction, you know, probably would have been made with someone else. <laughs> and that's Pulp Fiction is a, especially again speaking from my lifetime perspective, is a big reason he still gets work because he's the guy from Pulp Fiction. Right. He has like some other movies, I think, but he probably like the peak that he reached with Pulp Fiction is just. Uh, and all deservedly so because he's fucking incredible. In he this is movie. amazing. We said it during Contrarian's Corner. We'll say it again. Again, we'll say it again now. 
It's hard to believe it's the same guy from Battlefield Earth. <laughs> it's hard to believe that Vincent and Turrell are the same people. Yeah. I mean, this is it's a performance. It's not even just him playing himself. Yeah. Battlefield Earth feels a lot more like him playing himself. <laughs> like not in caring. makeup. Yeah. In makeup. Right? But here it's it's very nuanced the way that he reacts to things. Mm-hmm. Uh Vincent feels like just like a regular guy. It, it, yeah. You know, like out of those two, uh, you know, you have Sam Jackson playing it up. He's yeah. like the the big bombastic Verbose. gangster. Yeah. yeah, and Travolta is just like the quieter guy, the the silent guy who his whole thing with uh, with Uma Thurman, and we'll get to Uma Thurman. But uh, the um, Vincent Vega and Mia Wallace portion of that, like the start to him getting to the house to him dropping her back off is like I don't know of a more perfect segment of filmmaking that I could like reference off the top of my head. And yet so very little happens in a way, mm-hmm. right? That's I mean, we're making fun of it in Concerned Corner, but that's really uh that's part of the pleasure of watching this movie is just seeing them go on a date mm-hmm. and just talk. There is a little bit of tension because he brings up the guy that got thrown out of the window. Yeah. But for the most part, it's these two people that don't know each other just awkwardly navigating this dinner. Yeah. Uh, I love when she wants to dance. He doesn't want to because he knows, like, the danger that could bring. Uh, and I was joking about the white people dancing thing in uh, Contrarian's Corner. But as I told Julio we were watching it, this scene of John Travolta dancing is, like, one of the few times a white man's ever been cool. Like, watching <laughs> him do that, it's just fucking, oh, it's so great. Uh, and he goes through all, he gets to show off. In, in this segment too because you know he goes on the date and that's like one type of Travolta mm-hmm. you know where he's uncomfortable and kind of uptight and then they come back from the date and he's cool guy Travolta cool guy Travolta and then she ODs and he's panic Travolta yeah. and you know like you said he's he's like pure Travolta just get the shot exactly and yeah. uh, the a magic a felt pen a fucking magic marker um Julio and I, in the duration of our friendship, always reference uh, the scene of Travolta talking to himself in the mirror. <laughs> it's just so perfect. Yep. Uh, now, this is a moral test of one's ability. Uh, you go home, jerk off. And that's all you're going to do. <laughs> it's it's perfect. Um, Uma, Thurman, uh, Uma Thurman is perfect in this also. What I love, you mentioned she out of the build players probably has the least amount of screen time, definitely the least amount of screen time or the most amount of screen time of any female character, but she's so good that you're kind of left wanting more with her. Right. And she, I mean, like we said, you see her a couple of times later in the movie. Mm-hmm. Once this is done, you see her at the beginning of the Bruce Willis story, uh, where she tells, uh, John Travolta, thanks for, I never thank you for dinner. Yeah. And then you see her in that just silent shot in the background when, uh, Marcellus is calling or song on the phone. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, she's tremendous in this. And uh, I was disappointed because, you know, I watched Pulp Fiction uh, after the Oscars had happened. Uh, and I watched in this bootleg VHS tape. Excellent. Yeah. And, uh, and even then, you know, it gripped me. But it was one of those things where it just kept surprising me. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, – I was not ready for that kind of stuff where – Knowing that Travolta had been nominated for an Oscar, knowing that Uma Thurman had been nominated for an Oscar, right? I was, I was surprised when 
she doesn't show up again really after the first segment mm-hmm. and also I was blown away when Travolta gets killed halfway through yeah because I was like holy shit I thought he was our guy that was pretty shocking um, but it's with Travolta being like one of the leads in it that's the thing of how well the film's made it's like we don't end on the sad note of Travolta dying and then we also don't have to get rid of him halfway through the movie right but, yeah the storytelling uh, you mentioned it too, and I guess it's something I never even thought of. This was Bruce Willis's quiet return back to the top. I think so. I it felt like it, and I was we were going through his filmography uh, earlier, and it really. I mean, he'd done a couple of things, right? What did I tell you? Like ninety one, ninety one was Hudson Hawk, which is a, a big bomb, and he also did Last Boy Scout, which is Brandon but, Curtis's favorite movie. But being realistic, it was a bomb as well. Was it yeah. okay? And then there's like a couple other things. Uh, Death Becomes Her, the Robert Zemeckis movie. I think mm-hmm. he did in 92, which okay. I haven't seen it, but it's supposed to be good. He was also in Look Who's Talking. Well, doesn't count. <laughs> but it, I don't know. To me, it always felt like Pulp Fiction brought him back. And it, well, like that quote I read. He's like, a badass in this movie. Like, right. Yeah. And they say it turned him into a serious actor because really it's not an action role. No. It's, it's just it's a drama. Yeah. Uh, he, he doesn't get to do as much as Travolta and Samuel Jackson as far as like showy stuff yeah. right but he's still he's great he and that moment when he stops to and decides that he's gonna go back to help marcellus mm-hmm. that is amazing acting yeah uh yeah that whole scene again it's so weird and off-putting the zed and uh gimp scene that's the that's, that's the one that that's the tarantino twinkle <laughs> but that's the one where that you'd be like I want to watch it with my parents and show them how cool this movie is, but I don't know that I want to sit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, with that though, it it like within the confines of the story, it makes sense because it would have to be something horrible like that to put them together. Yeah, to put them together again. Um, if you just paid them off or something, that'd be anticlimactic. Right. Uh, yeah, and it's. I like how crazy it gets. I mean, really, it had to get that crazy. Yeah. You know, like the the it's like he says from the moment that he leaves the apartment to go get the watch, it's just the what happens keeps getting more and more outrageous. Mm-hmm. You know, pop tarts, Travolta and the shitter, <laughs> the red light with Ving Rames, the pawn shop, the redneck with, rapist. Yeah, exactly. So it's just it's escalation now. Also. I don't know if, if you how aware you were of this, but you know, there's somebody else when Tarantino won the Oscar. There's this other guy mm-hmm. uh, who only gets story by credit. Uh, uh, and you know, Tarantino gets written and directed, mm-hmm. but story by is this guy in Tarantino, and of course, I can't remember his name now. But it's uh, he's a, a writer and director. He did uh, that movie with uh, Dawson from Dawson's Creek, uh, Rules of Engagement. Okay, uh, you know that movie? Yeah, yeah. Roger Avery. I think okay. that's the same. Anyway, I remember reading at the time that he he wrote the Gold Watch. So Tarantino wrote Vincent Mia. He wrote the Gold Watch, and then Tarantino wrote uh, the Bonnie situation. And then Tarantino I, he struck a deal with him where he's like, "Just I'm gonna rewrite the Gold Watch because I want to get sole credit as written and directed, and you know, and you just get story by." And so he did it. And that's why when they won the Oscars, like, you know, they're both up there, but the movie still it says written and directed by Tarantino. Uh, but anyway, so it's kind of funny to think that the Gold Watch is really not originally, it wasn't a Tarantino thing, you mm-hmm. know? It just, he just adapted it. And it really, when you're watching the movie, if you don't know that, it flows just as oh, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the same time, it's this thing that's set almost on a separate, 
I don't want to say world, but yeah. you know, it's just it's not Vince and Jules and Marcellus. I mean, well, Marcellus is in it, but not yeah. Mia. It's uh, Sam Jackson's like the constant, and so like that segment of the film without him on it, it really does feel like you're separated from mm-hmm. everything else going on. Yeah. Uh, easily, you know, people recognize this as Sam Jackson's career defining performance, and rightfully so. He's so fucking good in it. The final scene of him just schooling Tim Roth is just outstanding. It's so good, and it's a shame. Not a shame. I mean, Sam Jackson has a hell of a career, but it almost it almost feels that a lot of it it just it suffers from being in the shadow of his performance of Pulp Fiction, at mm-hmm. least to me. I always feel like, oh, it's Sam Jackson trying to be a badass again. Yeah. But really, you know, I guess there's a generation now like that knows him as movie, Nick Fury. Yeah, but. There's a lot of his movies that he made after this action movies where it's almost like his character is a parody of Jules. Right. Yeah. That's how – I mean, again, he's probably swimming in money, so yeah. – Good for him, and and I still, I mean, you took a dig at Freedom Land, but at least <laughs> Freedom Land, I don't think he's trying to do that. Uh, there's this movie where he plays a, a boxer with, uh, I think Josh Hartnett is it? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, the, the he's like a homeless boxer, the last with, champion or something, or something like that. where he yeah. plays completely against type, and I I always enjoy when I get to see him do that because it's like okay, he's definitely. Not Jules at all. Mm-hmm. It's not even in that area. That not in, not that, in that ballpark, as yeah. you would say. <laughs> Aiming the same fucking sport. Um, just in general, Tarantino, he, he puts racial slurs a bit too frequent in his material for me. Uh, to the point where I... <laughs> where it makes you uncomfortable? Yeah, kind of because he writes all that stuff. So it's like... It probably doesn't get more uncomfortable than when he is on screen saying it. Yes. And, okay, I love the movie... And this doesn't really diminish my appreciation for it, but I really wish he had gotten an actor, like an actual actor, to play the part of Jimmy. Not to do the Shyamalan route. Yeah, it's unnecessary. I don't like it when Shyamalan does it either. But, you know, I, I don't understand. Well, maybe I do. I wish somebody had told him, hey, you should get an actor. Yeah. Right? Because he, I don't think he's terrible, but he is surrounded by heavyweights. Yeah. Harvey Keitel, John Travolta, Samuel Jackson doing career best work and and he's there and he anyone just, would stick out like a sore thumb exactly you know so if he had gotten somebody else uh who is there from michael madsen mm-hmm. could have gotten michael madsen chris penn chris penn yeah you know get like an actual like seasoned actor to do it and then uh it wouldn't feel so awkward and, yeah and then you also get by you know you don't have the guy that wrote the N-word saying the N-word. The white guy that wrote the N-word saying the N-word. Yeah, and then uh, – but in the end, like you said, it doesn't diminish an appreciation of the film. And almost like his performance has become like something of legend to parody. Oh, yeah. Him. My friend Drew, uh, I mentioned before in this podcast, well, you met him. He could – I'm sure he still can recite the entire Jimmy Coffee monologue <laughs> with the same inflection, the same everything. It is – She gets you know. shit. That's why I go to this. Um, Doesn't Jimmy me, Jules? <laughs> I did love the Julius Sweeney cameo at the end. I have no idea what the fuck that was about. But going back to uh, something we referenced in Contrarian's Corner, I like that the lines don't match up at the beginning and the end with Honey Bunny. Oh, I told you. To me, it it bothers me, but not it bothers me in the same sense that the Tarantino performance bothers me. As in, like, oh, it's something that I wish was different. It bothers me in the sense of I wish I knew if he just missed it or if it was intentional. My money is... He, I don't think. I mean, I don't think he missed it. I'm sure he's he was aware of it, but it's. Uh, 
I guess he decided not to go for another take. <laughs> yeah. I guess if we could put this in perspective about this movie, as much as we've quoted it, as much as it is parodied and admired in pop culture, um, as many times as you and I have seen it, it I still never look at it as a chore to rewatch. Oh, no. it's Like I said, it's a pleasure to watch. It's just so much fun. Uh, the conversations are just... The dialogue is just so good. The performances are so good. Uh I really feel your boy, uh, not Marty McFly. Eric it, Stoltz. Yeah, we didn't even talk about him all yet. The, all the minor characters also get to shine. So you have Eric Stoltz. You have Harvey Keitel. Um, Eric Stoltz, uh, like I pointed out to you, that just bemused look on his face when the phone keeps ringing because he has to get up from his cereal and his joint. And then also his the acting of him finding the shot and explaining what to do. You have to come down in a stabbing-like motion. I got to stab her three times? No. <laughs> And then, of course, the delivery of the line where uh, you'll stab her, and then Travolta's like, and then what? Well, frankly, I'm curious myself about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's so good. I Steve Buscemi, great, and his little <laughs> his, tiny throwaway his, role. His little tiny cameo. I'm guessing he was busy. I can't understand why somebody who played such a I big I could part... definitely see him as the Jimmy character. Oh, dude, that would have been amazing. That would have been great. Yeah. Steve Buscemi can deliver those end bombs <laughs> like nobody else. Ah, it's Steve Buscemi. Surprised that he won just one Oscar, but, you know, it's one of those things where you it always was, have... It, well, again, looking at everything that was nominated that year, it was up against... Who did Travolta lose against? Uh, it... Tom Hanks. Oh, duh, of yeah. course, yeah. That's... Well, Which... Forrest Gump is my favorite movie of all time, so I would have to stand by my man in that situation. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think the real price for Travolta was a resurgence in his he, career. He was back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know that, uh, like I said, that he, I mean, it sounds mean to say that he peaked. And this is really going back to the Travolta factor, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, we've talked about his performance plenty, but it, I, I wouldn't say that he peaked uh, in a mean sense but i'm just, this is definitely a career high yes i think and you know as we revisit his filmography in the coming months i might again appreciate uh the the you know what they have to offer but it also feels like like i said with sam jackson where his jewels in pulp fiction kind of throws a shadow over everything that came next it also feels like travolta's vincent vega kind of throws a shadow uh over the rest of his career, and mm -hmm. not in in this case, not because he's trying to do Vincent Vega all over again in his following movies, but just because the rest of his movies, all those characters, I guess they don't hit you as hard as it's, Vincent Vega. If I can make an analogy, in my opinion, what you mean by that, or what I'm interpreting, kind of that, especially with the Jewel situation, if Heath Ledger had lived after The Dark Knight, a lot of people would just want him as the Joker over and over again. Right. Yeah. Or, like you said, it would just cast this massive shadow over right you'd be like he was good but you know not as good as when he was in the dark knight yeah and that kind of stuff which it's never good ever when someone dies in a situation like that but at the same time as far as like that's gonna help that performance go down with so much of a bigger legacy was that he did pass yeah and there's the thing i mean pulp fiction at this point is just iconic yeah it's like you were saying it's just a, a part of the culture so that affects everybody it affects tarantino the movie itself travolta uma thurman uh, Do you know how many times Christopher Walken's probably had someone walk up to him and go, <laughs> watch up his ass? Uh, and he loves it. He is incredible in that scene. 
that is like that scene's like almost like just a short film. I wish it was an an interrupted take of him delivering the monologue just so that we could say and it's all in one take, yeah. which it could have been. I don't know. I mean, they cut to little butch, but I don't think it's necessary. But the way we were talking about it when watching it, the way that scene's presented, it's such a powerful and emotional delivery of the information until he gets to the part of up his ass and then starts dropping the that's the only time I laugh in that movie when there's like racial <laughs> slurs dropped just because it's, it's Christopher right. Walken and well there's yeah the, the way and we say and it's especially in that part too it's it pertains it's paramount to the story he's telling because he was in that war mistreated by these people right. that he holds this grudge against type of thing yeah but it's definitely the, the tone changes uh, like yeah which shows how good his delivery is because like without the bat of an eyelash it, it changes without in the time of it takes to shake a lamb's tail twice <laughs> did it remind you of Juno what the the uh, Uma Thurman's dialogue oh it, when it, you pointed that out yeah okay it, it made me think of that too but not in a bad way well this is also a tremendous movie that things like that <laughs> don't distract me um, well what I like I guess is that I noticed that in this watch after the whole incident, the, the, her final scene with with Vincent, when she tells the joke and everything, and she's just, her makeup is gone, she looks terrible and everything, she talks like a normal person. She doesn't have the affectation that she's had yeah. the entire date, so that makes it, I think, even better. I love so dearly, it may be my favorite part in that entire movie, just the silence and the reaction Travolta has when she tells her joke. Because he's exhausted. He, and but he's he chuckles. Like, yeah, just, oh, it's so perfect. Yeah. I, I love that so much. Uh, Ving Rhames, all joking and jesting aside, is so fucking scary and powerful in this movie. It's it's excellent. Like every time I watch it again, I get scared for Dorian because I'm like, <laughs> oh man, you're fucked, dude. Uh, I think the next movie I saw him in after this one was uh, uh, what's in Con Air, right? He uh, is in that. Yeah, he's in Con Air, but in Con Air, he's not that scary, even though he's supposed to be this. Terrible criminal. Of course, Conair is, I think, PG-13. And I guess Malkovich is supposed to be the really scary one there. That's uh, right. And, uh, yeah, Ving Rhames is more like just kind of like the jolly bad guy, but not uh, not really – nowhere near as scary. So for me to see Marcellus Wallace, uh, I guess I expected him to be the really scary guy in, in that plane. And Have you seen The Goods? Uh, yes, but I don't remember him in it. Oh man, he's really really funny. Is he one of the salesmen? Yeah, he, he's uh, Jimmy, the black guy with the fedora. I okay. Well, you should revisit it because he's very funny in that movie. I remember Ari and Ed oh. Helms. I think it that's took me what... a second for me to remember who the fuck you were talking about. Ed Helms, he is in that. He's the yeah, the guy that yeah, sings. The fiance, he's on the boy band. Uh, yeah, but there's not a weak link in this movie. Um, I mean, you could, like we said, the, the Tarantino, they could have got an actor to do it, but it doesn't take away from it. It's just... Dude, Josh Gad delivering that dialogue. <laughs> Can you imagine? He he could be a Jimmy. It's so in- extraordinarily rare that you have five iconic performances in one movie, and that's what you get here. And yeah, I think it is always lo- it's lost on me, because I'm always so enamored by John Travolta and Samuel Jackson in this, how fucking good Bruce Willis is in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he's because he's not playing the colorful character. He's yeah. just like the taxi scene. His delivery of all that is just fantastic. I yeah, it is off-putting. His very young wife and some of the, but that's fine. I mean, once I get off the moral high horse, that I you know, 
purposely put myself on during Contrarian's Corner. I don't care. It's a character. I like it. Adds like a shade to you know. He's dating this woman that's kind of like a child, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know that it, it, it's. I think it makes him distinctive and makes their interaction interesting. And actually, she is a hell of a performer too, because even with Bruce Willis not being the colorful character in their scenes together, Bruce Willis is the one that's calling attention to everything, mm-hmm. and she just gets to react to him. I yeah. mean. The the potbelly monologue, I mean, that's one thing. But really, when he's confronting her about forgetting to watch and her reaction. You either did or you didn't. Then I did. Right. Yeah. And then she's like, are you sure? No. And then yeah. she tears up. And and then she's talking to herself. And she's like, I remember watching, seeing the watch. And I thought I took it. I know. It's just so good. But Willis is like kicking things and throwing a TV across the walls. Of course, it, her performance gets lost there. Uh, we have done a 100% movie before with uh, Modern Times, uh, but this is on the score level at the higher end of ones we've done. Um, and also, to me, this is probably one of, if not the best movie, my favorite movie that we've covered so far. I'll it's have definitely to go at down. the top of the list. Of, it's up there with Family Stone. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I will go as I will be so bold as to say that. Uh, I'll have to go down, down our list. Uh, one day, I think when we get to 100. We'll rank them all. In, I'm down. Post in, it on the website. Yeah, yeah. All right. So that was Pulp Fiction. Moving along in the summer of Travolta. What's uh, what's on deck? What's next? Coming up next is our bonus May episode. That is Hairspray. All the bonus ah, episodes are musicals. Excellent. I like it. So not a Travolta vehicle per se. No. Uh, would you call Pulp Fiction a Travolta vehicle? I think I think it's more like an ensemble. Yeah. Uh, Battlefield Earth was more of a Travolta vehicle, mm-hmm. even though it really should have been a Barry Pepper vehicle. <laughs> it should have been. Yeah, um, I think this just was an ensemble cast that worked to bring John Travolta back to the limelight. Yeah. Uh, but Not yeah, to say he wasn't like not famous, but you know what I mean, like revered and uh, a respected actor. A respected actor. The respected part is uh, really the... It's bolded and italicized. Yeah. Well, you know, is it him that said, or somebody else, one of those people that you know had a comeback that said, they keep calling it a comeback, but I never went away. They did. Yeah, I've heard that before. I don't like, know who said that, but I've heard it from multiple people. I don't know. If it's Travolta, I mean, he's being funny, because, I mean, clearly what they mean is... Yeah, yeah. No, I know. <laughs> Uh, no, Hairspray is not a Travolta vehicle, but it is a very good movie, so I'm excited to watch that. Yeah, and Travolta plays a big part. Uh, As a woman. Yeah. That's uh, our bonus episode, and then our next official episode is episode 60, which is a gray area episode, and that is a Travolta vehicle. That is Phenomenon. Okay. At 50%. And then That's we'll have... We, we... Yeah, that'll be in June, and then and then we get to look who's talking to. God, what a, what a time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> all right so moving along here to plugs uh this week i finished uh since we last recorded i finished the third season of love on netflix so again i'm just gonna badger you to watch that show because it's fantastic i like i said i need to get to it before it just becomes too intimidating yeah and whoever uploaded the entire series of king of the hill on youtube my shout out is to you uh that that show used to be on netflix but their contract expired 
and all of it's never been released, like on physical media or anything. And there's no other place to stream it. Someone just uploaded the whole series on YouTube. So we'll see how long it lasts. It'll, it's been up for a couple months or a month. So uh, yeah, it's any day now that I'm expecting it to be taken <laughs> down. But thank you, sir uh, or ma'am, whoever set that up. I appreciate uh, it. Speaking of shout outs, somebody downloaded every single episode of our podcast. Good Lord. To date. Uh, so you know who you are. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was impressive. Um, if you've listened to all of them, I imagine you can see how far we've come. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would imagine, okay, there's no way that you download all of them without having sampled at least one or two, right? Yeah, Before you not. make the commitment to download yeah. almost 60 episodes. Uh, my one plug this, uh, this time, Alex, is speaking of all-encompassing, Infinity War mm. came out a couple of weeks ago. I just I I don't know how to actually I do know how to explain it to you. This is the WrestleMania 30. Ah, excellent. Yeah, and and it's because there's been such a buildup mm-hmm. to it, and I've seen people complaining that it doesn't stand alone. That it's not a standalone movie, which is the dumbest thing. It's like, do you live under a rock? I mean, it's been. It's been touted as the culmination of 10 years of Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? It's mm-hmm. like, this is what we're building up to, and then it's Infinity War, and then what happens after Infinity War? But, mm-hmm. you know, this is this is it. So don't expect character introductions. <laughs> don't expect don't expect any, like, coddling as far as, like, exposition. The movie assumes that you're a Marvel fan, mm-hmm. that you've been watching this mo- these movies, and that you enjoy them, and... It just throws you right into the action. It's like you're Excellent. here to watch these characters that haven't interacted before interact, and let's go. Awesome. So it's amazing, and I wish I could like take you to watch it, but you need to catch up on at least five Marvel movies. Yeah, you I, I'm always behind. So. Yeah, I mean, because at first I was thinking, you know, we could just do Civil War, and then I'll take you to this, and you'll understand the bare bones. But really, to really get the joy out of it, you need to watch the Spider-Man movie so you can, you know, mm. really enjoy his character in this one. You need to watch Black Panther movie so you can enjoy that. It's just, there's too much good stuff. I got I got some catching up to do. Yeah. But I've heard a lot of good things. It's definitely going to motivate me to do so. Yeah, it's it's really, it's epic. And I appreciate, uh, you know you know me well in referencing WrestleMania 30 <laughs> specifically, so... <laughs> Uh, usual uh, plugs, festive years, providing our opening and closing tracks. Uh, uh, if you like our logo, Hans Rodgieser did it. I don't know that he'd do a logo for you, but he has a podcast called Nación Combi. It's in Spanish. If you know Spanish, get to it. If you don't know Spanish, get to learn in Spanish and then listen to his podcast. <laughs> uh, but either way, it's a good time. Uh, outside of that, do we have any other plugs? We cover everything in the intro. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's it. I Really not like an official, official announcement, but we're kind of sort of on Stitcher and tune in. I I got the emails from them saying that we're on it, but I haven't really tested it. So mm-hmm. we'll have more on the next episode. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh but that was Pulp Fiction. Julio, thank you for spending Saturday afternoon with me. I'm gonna go take a nap now and then get ready for the <laughs> evening. But uh as always we appreciate you joining us here on the Contrarians where we're right and you're wrong and we will catch you next time.
Hey guys, do you have a screenplay you need feedback on? Well, you are in luck. I, Julio, the half of the contrarians that speaks with an accent, am doing official screenplay coverage now. And if you're a listener of the show, you'll get a discount. Just email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com and tell us which is your favorite episode of the podcast and why. Turnaround is about two weeks and you'll get detailed notes that are even more thorough than what we do in the show. Although it'll also be less funny. For more information, email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com or visit our website, wearethecontrarians.com, and click on the Julio Reads Your Scripts link. Your voice is beautiful.